This is Grace Talks, a production of Simpson United Methodist Church in Bangor, Michigan. Our scripture reading today is from John 2, 1 through 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jugs, the kinds used by the Jews for ceremonial wedding, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the, the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, God our Lord and Savior, this day and every day. Amen. So I've mentioned this in the past, but recently I've been helping out at the Mead Hall here in town. And one of the first things I noticed when I took my first steps downstairs is the sheer scale of the operation. And while it's not as fancy or as large as some operations or some places, it's still kind of mind-boggling to see. Basically, to make the product, the owner, or at this point me at times, will take a 55-gallon drum, like the sort that people use for rain barrels or animal feed or whatever other uses there might be, and fill it to the desired amount with water, somewhere around 30 gallons or so. We will then add the honey and yeast or whatever other ingredients the specific recipe calls for. And at this point, we seal it up for a year, at which point we bottle it and we turn it around so that we can ship it out wherever it might be destined for. Now, the crazy part is that each of these barrels fill somewhere near a hundred bottles apiece, give or take, and each bottle, here's the fun part of the sermon, could get someone well and truly drunk two, two times over, if consumed all at once. And so one barrel, 100 bottles we'll say, has the potential to get around 200 people feeling well and truly loopy. And that's just one barrel. 
Jesus turned six pots from water into wine. Each barrel or each pot contained somewhere in the avenue of 20 to 30 gallons, according to the text, which means that Jesus in this tale is transforming somewhere between 120 gallons to 190 gallons of water into wine. So if we're limiting our thinking about alcohol to drinking to get drunk, which is, you know, alcoholism, Jesus has the potential to get somewhere between 12 and 1500 people feeling very happy to put it another way jesus has the potential to get somewhere between five and ten thousand people over the legal limit of operating a motor vehicle and this is just a small wedding in cana jesus in other words is bringing the party Now, that's a way to start a sermon. It's not something you'll hear if you walk into the Baptist church who insists that Jesus was turning water into grape juice. Of the four Gospels, John is the Gospel that doesn't contain miracles. What I mean by that is not that Jesus does not do miraculous things, but rather they are not specified as miracles in the book of John. Rather, they are specified very specifically as signs. Jesus does signs in the book of John. In fact, John, for the longest time, was referred to as the book of signs. Specifically, in the book of John, there are seven with the water into wine being the first. The others being the healing of the official son, the healing of the man who is paralyzed by the pool, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on water, the healing of the man born blind, and finally the raising of Lazarus. Now what does all of this mean? What's the point of all of this? Because we can't very well turn water into wine ourselves, and so obviously there must be something that we can pull from this text to apply to our own lives. I would say we might look at this text through the lens of Christ and seeing it as Christ turning the, turning the water into wine and pointing out the ability through the grace of God to take the mundane elements of our own lives and to turn them into something extraordinary. To take what is mundane and to turn it into something good and beautiful. The ability to take the overlooked elements of ourselves or even sometimes the harmful and bitter elements of ourselves and to turn it into something beneficial and blessing. Similarly, it symbolizes Jesus's ability to save the best for last. When Jesus turns the water into wine in this passage, the host of the party pulls the bridegroom aside and commends him for what's happened, saying everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine when the guests have had too much to notice. But you've saved the best for last. Which doesn't really make sense when you think about it, because the other way of doing it, the one that the 
host of the party talks about seems the more sensible way to do it. You bring out the good stuff first, and then you save the cheap stuff for later. But what we find when it comes to Christ is that Christ takes the expected and turns it upside down. Jesus takes the normal and makes it unique. The world as we live in it is at such a point where it seems as though the collective view we have is that things now are worse than they were before. There seems to be this cultural pessimism that says that our best days are behind us as though things will only get worse from here. We carry with us this incredible cultural pessimism for the future that things are going to get darker in the days to come as though the best wine was served first and we just have the cheap wine ahead of us. But Christ in this passage is telling us that the best is yet to come. The best isn't behind us, the best is ahead of us. In the context of our own church here at Simpson United Methodist Church, it's a way of viewing the life of the church and recognizing that the best days don't have to be behind us. They can be ahead. They can be the direction that we're going. They can be the services that we can still offer, the fellowships that we can still share in, the communities that we can still build and foster. Potentially, we have the ability to see that the best wine is yet to come. And again, it bears mentioning that this gift comes to us in the form of excess. When Jesus turns water into wine, he doesn't turn a little bit into wine. He brings the party. Jesus brings enough for everyone and more. Jesus brings enough for not just the entire party, but the, potentially the entire city of Cana to enjoy. And this gift can, of course, be viewed in one of two ways. It can be viewed as excessive, and we might see this if we only look at the guests of the party being the recipients of the wine, or it can be viewed as enough. The wine that Jesus transforms could be viewed as a way that is in, in a way that is invitational. A gift that keeps giving. The amount of wine that Jesus could that Jesus provides could be seen as excessive if it's hoarded and kept to the few, or it can be seen as enough if it is shared and given freely. And this is what's actually intended. The wine is intended to be shared rather than hoarded. If we read this passage with the feeding of the 5,000 in mind, then what we find is that what is excessive or ridiculous for the few is more than enough for the many. And isn't that the message of the gospel? Isn't that what we celebrate in communion every month? That whenever Jesus sets the table, we realize that there is always enough. 
and that is the incredible power of communion, that is the incredible imagery of the sacrament, that there is always enough for everyone. I have served communion several times over, and I've had it happen so that we've handed out the exact amount of the loaf of bread that we had on hand, but I've never had a communion where we've run out. When it comes to our own lives, when it comes to our lives shared together, we should always remember that there's more than enough to share. I'll say this again and again, and you'll hear me say this again and again, but when it comes to the blessings of our lives, we can either view the blessings of our lives through the lens of scarcity as though there's only a small amount and we have to save it and keep it for ourselves so that we will always have enough. Or we can view it through the lens of sufficiency, the view that there is abundance and so everyone can have enough. To use another metaphor, farming. Farming has the potential to be done in such a way that it serves only a few most effectively. Farming has the potential to be done in such a way so that powerful corporations are the ones that own the patents and the land and the machinery in such a way so that everyone becomes reliant on them and they benefit the most despite everyone needing the food that is provided. Or it can be done in such a way so that everyone is benefited. Everyone is blessed. Ellen and I, among many other people our age, including Dan and Caitlin and Mike, are making efforts towards becoming more involved in agriculture. We've been looking into new forms of sustainability and good farming practices that are helpful rather than harmful. Ways that we can farm gardens and farms without having to rely so heavily on a nightmare-sounding corporation like Monsanto. We've been looking into ways that we can leave the land better than we found it. We've been looking into ways that we can host or we can hold these farming practices like rotating crops or shared crops or no-till farming. And these are methods that can provide for the land and have provided for the land for thousands of years in ways that it doesn't have to go through the same level of artificial upkeep. Rather, the land can provide for itself, and we can act as caretakers and stewards rather than as masters over it. In Ellen's case, she's working with a friend of ours up in Covert to begin a farm that focuses on sustainability. In Caitlin and Dan's case, looking at Eugene, they're thinking about starting something a little more local. The modern practices that we have now work, but they only work for a season. The pesticides and patented crops and large-scale factory farming that we rely on now only really works for a little while. In the long run, it does more harm than good. But if we change our methods, 
if we live in such a way so that we can view these things so that we can share them rather than hoard them, we find that we begin to live more communally. We begin to live more in harmony, not only with one another, but in participation with the land itself. We begin to live with the expectation that the best is yet to come. So to step past the farming metaphor to try to tie this all together into a nice bow, I take us to the topic of love. Just as Jesus hands out blessings in such a way that there is always enough, so too are we able to share love in such a way so that there is always enough. Who here, a lot of grandparents in the audience, who here, has found that you have too many grandkids, you have too big of a family, and so you run out of love to share. No, because that's silly. What we find when a new kid, when a new family member, when a new person enters our lives, speaking to those of us more my age who don't have grandkids, <laughs> When a new person enters our lives, what we find is that there's actually no limit to the amount of love that we can hand out. There's no limit to how much love we can share. It's not as though there's a finite amount and once it's gone, it's gone and sorry, grandkid number five, there's no love left for you. Instead, it grows, and it expands, and it becomes as though there is more and more room. What we find when we welcome a new grandkid or a new family member or a new child or whatever the case might be is that our love doesn't shrink. Rather, our love expands and includes the new person. We find that our capacity for love grows with each new relationship. And we find that love is best when it is shared rather than hoarded. Love is perhaps the easiest and best example that we can use because when we look at love, we find that there is always the potential for excess. We realize love is the greatest renewable resource. Which if you need a quotable blip for this sermon, Carla, I'm looking at you. If you need something to write down and underline, it's that. Love is the greatest renewable resource. What we find when we look at the church or the community that we find ourselves living in is that there is always room for growth. There's always room to share what we have. There's always room to realize that the, poured, the, pour, the filled pots can be poured out freely. And there's always room for more. Because Jesus is always at the ready, ready to fill it up again. Ready to prove that there is always more to be dished out. There is always extra. 
And in Christ, what we find is that the extra is always better than the first.